Hey everybody, it's Jim Colby with the Cram Guys podcast here in Minnesota. Normally at this point in our podcast, we would be doing a comedic ad for Joe Shrimp Shack. But we wanted to take this time to remind you to stay safe during these riots and protests all across our nation. No matter what your view, please stay safe out there. As many of you know, that Joe from Joe Shrimp Shack is down in the Minneapolis area, and he's been on the front lines night after night filming what's been going on so he can share it later. Please stay safe and know that our prayers go to the George Floyd family. And please don't forget about our friends over at the Ohio Fish Rescue. You can find them on YouTube. And thanks from the Aquarium Guys podcast here in Minnesota. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today, we are going to, to be talking something controversial. You know, we, we had the Dumpster Fire podcast. Uh, what do we call that one? I don't even remember the name. Do you remember the name, Jimmy? Uh, I think it was just a scream or something or we or... Read the podcast, yeah, right? Yeah, something like that. Sucks so, the podcast. It sucks the podcast. Sucks the podcast. There Thank we go. Uh, based off that, we didn't get nearly enough terrible feedback on that podcast. So we're just going to jump a little further into the fire. <laughs> I don't think that's necessary. No? No. I mean, we didn't. I was expecting to jump off a cliff and we, we barely got tickled with a feather. So. Well, we were hoping you would jump off a cliff. So let's jump off that cliff together. In preparation of this, before we talk about the topic, I'm going to do a quick round of introductions. We have Matt Peterson from Amazon Hello. Magazine. How you doing, buddy? Good. Matt Matt has aged a year and a half since we started this podcast. We have. We, uh, we, we had some technical <laughs> difficulties, uh, malpreparation, and uh, we're missing Adam. Adam's going to be getting a new PC. Yeah, so. we're hoping. It's, uh, we, we, we're down one, but we're, uh, we're, we're surviving and struggling through. Th- thanks again to uh, coming back in the podcast, Matt. We're excited to have you back on. I'm happy to be back, especially since uh, you know you're trying to raise a little controversy with this one. So hopefully we'll we'll do a little bit more uh, you know controversial than uh, we, we can get in the magazine just because it's a podcast free format. But our next guest is Dan Piazza. Please tell me I'm saying that correctly. Uh, close enough. We appreciate you having it on, buddy. I, I invited both of you right on. Uh, Matt Peterson, you are representing the saltwater side of the house. And Dan is representing the freshwater side of the house. And this evening, we're going to be talking about aquarium bowls and jars. Aquarium bowls and jars? Yes. Then why did I buy the gasoline and the kittens? No, no, that's... That's another... That's what uh, the whole big cat rescue thing's trying oh, to do. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Hashtag no. Carol Baskin. That's right. Right. At least that's what I heard. You know, that's not slander. Just right. It's hearsay. <laughs> it's hearsay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thanks again, guys, for uh, coming on the podcast. I do not have any questions this week that I have prepared and saved up. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? I've got nothing new. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this whole uh, uh, pet industry getting a little charge right now because people have some some money. We are talking earlier with Matt. The pe- people are spending more time with their, their pets and stuff, and we're seeing a, a little bit of uh, a lot of cat and dog rescues and things like that and stuff. So some, some good things have come uh, aboard from this COVID. So, I mean, at least some dogs and cats are getting adopted and whatnot. So, uh, for that, we're grateful. Hey, maybe we can get a quick update. Matt, how is Amazonas doing in this time of woe? We are cranking. We're busy. We've had our uh, best month ever. People are reading. People are stuck at home. People are finding the content and ordering in. We had a couple of fans message in that uh, they're they're purchasing back issues. Is that becoming more common now in COVID? (laughs) Um, 
I honestly I haven't noticed an, uh, any particular uptick of back, of back issues, so I couldn't speak to that. But gotcha. Well, I'm happy to see the business is going well. Yeah, so, we are too. Jimmy, yes, you ordered a uh, had my fish order that you had to drive all the way down to Minneapolis for because they wouldn't ship into Fargo. That's right. How did that go for you? That was not any fun at all. I drove down to Minneapolis last Tuesday to pick up a, a fish order that would normally come into Minneapolis and then transferred to Fargo, North Dakota, but they're not doing any transfers right now. There's such a lack of flights available for the most part, and the flights that are coming in are pretty uh, uninhabited, as they say. I mean, I'm talking to some of them where they're coming in with capacity of 143 people or something like that, and coming in with, with you know 60, 65 people, and they're still seating everybody together and not giving everybody a, a seat in between. But I drove down to Minneapolis to pick up uh, my fish. It went pretty smooth. I walked into uh, the Delta uh, cargo area. They stopped me within about six inches and took my temperature and asked me a few questions. They got my stuff to me very quickly, charged me a whole lot of money. There's a lot of different fees now thrown at us, and that was very frustrating for me. I, I think I spent $1,300 on fish, but 500 of it was in fees and shipping, which is not normal. But we're happy to get stuff. Uh, it is what it is. Uh, the stores are busy, like Matt had said earlier. I had uh, Our one store took uh, uh, over 500 shrimp um, in their store, and they were blowing through it on Saturday when I stopped up there. So a very interesting run uh, going on with this whole COVID thing, but it is what it is, and we just keep on uh, traipsing forward. What I'm hearing from a lot of the airlines and airline professionals that I've talked to is that they're just focusing on keeping contracts with certain airlines because if they don't fulfill flights, they quote unquote lose their spot in the airports. Right. So that's why they're doing the minimum flights and only the minimum flights, just to keep on you know that connection with a certain city. And you hear that you know some airlines are dropping certain cities as a symptom that. May not be a whole lot of big airlines left after this. Yeah, uh, Delta Airlines just announced uh, today that they're dropping all their triple sevens, seven seventy sevens, which is their big workhorse airline. They are not as efficient in fuel and whatnot, and so they are retiring those. I think they have eighteen of those, and eighteen doesn't seem like a lot, but that is a lot of money sitting there on the tarmac uh, that's not making them any money. They're going to uh, other more efficient, smaller airplanes and some bigger airplanes. They've dropped, I think they said, 10 different large areas. Like they normally go into New York, like in three different big airports and stuff. They're down to one in, in New York City and stuff. And they're just trying to survive like everybody else. So everybody's, you know, got a great frustration level, but we're hopefully uh, be able to pull this out because we do need our airline partners and everything else to continue uh, bringing in fish for all the hobbyists out there. Moving on from that, the only other thing I, I want to note for news this week is I we get messages from a lot of our friends or prior podcast subjects. They keep, keep in contact. And I have a message from uh, the Minnesota DNR. Minnesota DNR has been keeping us in the loop on some other states and species. And Michigan now has announced a invasive issue that they're having with the marbled crayfish. For those that don't know, marbled crayfish is not really that common in the aquarium trade, at least that I've seen or heard of. It's a darker... Uh, more speckled uh, crayfish, but it's very unique because they're all essentially <laughs> females and they all self-clone. So biologically, every one of the crayfish are, D are biologically identical at the DNA level. Are those, uh, they also call them the self-cloning crayfish, right. correct? And some have got out in Michigan because of neglect or someone releasing them. And, you know, a self-cloning anything is kind of a nightmare as long as the uh, ecosystem can support them and 
they're certainly proving to be very invasive in Michigan. Uh, a warning to all of you, if you have any, even if you're in somewhere, you know, in northern United States, Canada, a cold climate in another country, it, a, a species will try to survive and adapt no matter what. These may not necessarily match Michigan standards, but clearly they're surviving and thriving. Even in Minnesota, we have a, I think it's uh, the, the red swamp cray. That is not a, a traditional, you know, winter weather climate. It has uh, found its way into one of our lakes and is reproducing year after year. So nature will find a way. Do not give it the chance. Keep your pets in your aquarium or find somewhere that they can either, you know, take in a rescue or there is, you know, as people don't like to talk about, humane ways of culling your creatures. You know, and also last week I shared with you and Adam uh, down in Minneapolis all the holding ponds that are full of goldfish that people have released uh, down in the Minneapolis area. And uh, I shared that with you guys on uh, on the phone and stuff. And it's just uh, the pictures that they showed on there, there's just hundreds, if not thousands of goldfish just in these small holding ponds that have bred and they're just doing great. And I had, I had made a comment to you guys. I said, we should go out and rescue all these. Nobody responded. Everybody just like ignored me. That's how it goes. Yeah. So, you know, we don't get an opportunity to get a, uh, you know, head guy of uh, printed media on. Have you any heard any uh, news lately that uh, is worthwhile mentioning before we get into our deep dive subject? Um, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, let's see. Let's see. Um, MACNA was canceled as of today. So there will not be a MACNA in Phoenix this year. So just for the listeners, what is MACNA? MACNA is the Marine Aquarium Conference of North America. It is put on by the Marine Aquarium Societies of North America, which is MASNA. And uh, so, yeah, they had to cancel it. It's uh, pretty much the biggest Marine Aquarium conference. Uh, there might be some frag swaps and stuff like Reef and Palooza that might bring more people through the door. I'm not here to debate numbers, but MACNA is kind of like the one that everyone goes to if you're really into things. And uh, uh, people travel from all over the world to come to MACNA. So, uh, they had to cancel due to pandemic-related reasons, and um, so that was. I know they were tr they were trying not to, but that just happened today. Uh, what else? Uh, Hawaii, the marine aquarium fishery in Hawaii is um, coming up on their last environmental impact statement to try and reopen that fishery. Uh, so they're looking for support right now. Statements in support of sustainability. Man, it'd be nice to have him like every week, like a little little blip in the news. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm not even done yet, guys. Uh, so yeah, I got one more one more good um, news related item. But so well, two. Masna is also uh, still accepting nominations for the Masna Award and the Aquarius of the Year Award. That's on the saltwater side, and there are still two scholarships open for applications. Um, so people who are in the marine sciences, there's both an undergrad. And a graduate scholarship, as far as I know, those are still occurring. Um, so if you're a student and you're looking for free money, I, I've sat on the committee to to evaluate uh, applicants once. And the people who do this work to review the hundreds of applications, it's bare. The talent that applies, it's it's worth it. There's $4,000 on the line for two students. And then the last thing that happened, we're going to have a lot, of, a lot more on this in the forthcoming issue of Amazonas. Um, Brazil changed their export laws. So instead of having their white list, uh, you could say they're moving to a blacklist. And I'm really glossing over what, what's going on. But basically, uh, this is going to potentially open up 
several hundred freshwater species. We've been hearing uh, a bit about this. this. Do you have uh, details of what that's going to look like in the end? Is there some species that are just going to magically appear on people's lists? Yes. They're not on they're, They don't have to be on a list anymore. Um, there are still endangered fish that won't be available. And there are certain endangered fish or threatened fish that will be available through special uh, dispensation, for lack of a better word. But in a nutshell, if you can imagine, maybe there's 5,000 species of fish in Brazil. I'm just, that could totally be wrong there. But let's say only 400 were on the list in the past. And if you weren't on the list, you didn't get in. Now, you don't have to be on the list to be exported. You have to be on the list to not be exported. I mean, so that's a crazy way of thinking because there's, there's still species that can be discovered. So one of the interesting things about that is that undescribed species don't have to be evaluated anymore. That was part of the problem with a whitelist is, hey, we've got this cichlid. We don't know what it is. Well, it's not on the whitelist. Can't export it, even if there's bajillions of them. Now, you just have to have specimens on deposit at one of the museums, uh, and then it can be exported. Um, so it's going to change the freshwater trade from Brazil dramatically if we see shipments uh, coming back in the future, uh, because there's many more species that can be commercially exploited now. Uh, and then there's a few marine fish that potentially could come back. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar with Brazilian grandmas, um, but that species could now potentially show up on uh, Brazilian fish exports now, whereas it couldn't before. Um, there's a couple other species. So there's a lot more info coming. I don't want to talk all day about that, but that's big news on the freshwater side and slightly uh, saltwater as well. Now, you guys are sharing some more information uh, in the next episode of the Amazonas Magazine, correct? Yes, there's, yeah. a, full, there's a full interview with um, one of the authors of the new law. That's a... Uh, We've got a little bit on the Reef the Rainforest website, and then we've got more coming in the magazine. So Dire something to look forward to. Directly from the yes. horse with Loach's mouth. There we go. <laughs> that was a terrible pun. I apologize. Yeah, that was a terrible I watched you cringe on that. Yeah, one. I was I saw Matt take a shot. <laughs> yeah, he's like, okay, I need another one. Uh, Gonna be one right. of those nights. Yeah, I'm actually uh, thinking about going to the doctor, just having an IV put in, just so I can have alcohol continuously in my system for this podcast because it just makes things so much easier. You know, every time you make one of those jokes, I remember the stories of like the powder alcohol guy you told me about. Yes. One night uh, we had been partying a little bit and we came up with this great idea about powdered alcohol, like, you know, like crystal light. You get the little tubes of, of uh, powder and you pour it in your, in your bottle of, uh, of whatever, of, of water or whatever. You know, you go to the ball game, you pull out some vodka out of your pocket. We thought that was a great idea. About six, about six months later, there's a little blurb on CNN where somebody had come out with something like that, and the government shut them down immediately. So that saved me a lot of money, you know, not having to develop that. <laughs> but I thought it was a great idea, and we already had our our whole spiel about you know for the drunk on the go, you know, for we thought that'd be wonderful. Already down to the PR campaign yeah. steps. Yeah, we start with that, and then we'll develop it later. <laughs> I want to be in your brain someday, Jim. No, nobody needs to be there. The, the topic of the day, right, is jars and bowls. Now, really the moment you, you see a clip art online or something referenced or, you know, people talking about, I want to get a fish bowl. Immediately, the actual aquarist at home, the, you can feel angst in their spine build up. Like, they, they begin to quiver and like, no, you can't put a goldfish in a bowl. That's, a, that's the first thing to think of. So because of that, a lot of aquarists just take, jars bowls and other containers aside 
and focus on fish, you know, in anything larger than, you know, three gallons. Even when we talked about having betas, which easily can survive in a one gallon uh, container, you know, when we talked about that in the podcast, immediately got lit up feedback about people lost their you know, encouraging that. You know, we were explaining what a professional recommended, and we were in quite detail on that podcast. But what we want to do is I've been learning more and more about how actual diehard aquarists handle jars. And it's not for a big community tank or having species that are outgrowing the, the environment. And I figured this is a chance to use our platform to educate the miseducated on jars, bowls, and uh, other containers in the hobby. And I think the, the biggest one that's really coming to spotlight is saltwater. Having reef jars in like a, a couple-gallon aquarium or a couple-gallon jar. And I, I know no one that's uh, more prevalent than this than, uh, than Matt Peterson. I know a lot of people do it. I've, I've connected with a lot of people. But you seem to have at least uh, it down. You're talking about redundancies. You're, you're definitely an advanced chorus. So I asked you to come on to talk more about the, on the podcast. And we'll start with the saltwater side since that seems to be uh, the coming of popularity. So, Matt, number one, introduce us. What do you have, and what's your experience in doing these these jars or bowls? It started as a article, or really a, a cover feature idea for Coral. We ran it in uh, January, February of 2018. The issue was micro reefs. So I came to James Lawrence, who's the publisher of Coral, and said, yeah, there, there are people doing this uh, vase reef kind of thing. I think it's really interesting. I think we should we should showcase it. I think we should talk about it. And um, he kind of said, no way, not until, uh, you know, maybe a, a proof of concept. So I set up a proof of concept, if you will, uh, and set up a, a two-gallon vase reef here in my home. But my experience, uh, I, I would not consider myself an expert on this whatsoever. I've set up one. I owe most of my methodology to Mary Arroyo. Uh, and she has been highlighted repeatedly uh, with the Maritza Vase Reef. I worked with Mary to come up with a, a feature-length article on step-by-step -step how to do it. Uh, we also talked with uh, Felicia McCauley, who's another regular contributor. She had been keeping uh, some vase reefs of different sizes. We had Brandon Mason. Uh, contribute to this issue, and he had been keeping vase reefs and little jar reefs for oh, probably a decade by this point. It's not really a new thing. I'm certainly not the first to do it, um, and I owe most of what I did to Mary. She was the one who said, here's how I've kept my reef for six years. Here's the methodologies. Here's the thought behind it, and it's really simple, but it all stems back to that Jan Feb 2018 coral issue where I said, this is different. I want to showcase it. James said to me, do it first, prove it works, then we'll do it. And so here we are. Showcase, now it's getting traction, and it's uh, it's all downhill from there. So just to pick on your jar, you know, well, how did you start? Again, you've gotten some expertise from other, other people. What I think the first question people go is the size. You know, what container are you looking for? You said the word vase. So I'm assuming that gives a lot of, in, you know, interpretation or freedom to what you want to set this up. What would you be looking for? Pretty much, I, I I went to Michael's and started looking at all their at all their glassware. Pretty much, I was looking for the biggest glassware I could find in a shape that I thought made sense. And so I ended up with mine is an apothecary jar, uh, so it has a glass lid. It's kind of narrow at the base, and as it comes up, it comes out, it comes around, uh, then it rapidly comes in towards the top. 
comes back out as a glass lid. But I, I've seen a lot of people use the anchor hocking jars. Um, they even have custom ready-built LED lights that fit the two-gallon anchor, anchor hocking jar. What is an anchor hocking jar? You can go to any Walmart or Target. It's a jar meant primarily for food storage, I would assume. It's a two-gallon glass jar, and it has a glass lid. And uh, it, it reminds me of like going into like the old-time candy stores, and they have those giant, real thick glass with just a thick lid and a um, rubber, yes. rubber seal. Yes. Um, and, and I've seen a lot of people use those. Um, any, any glass vessel, really. Um, you could do it in a, in a glass fishbowl. No reason you couldn't. Pretty much any glass. That's, that's, the, that's the premise. There's, there's little to this. It's, um, it's the jar. And beyond that, my equipment consists of a, uh, a cobalt uh, slim profile heater. I picked that because it was a high quality heater with a narrow profile. I could hide it in a two gallon jar. Um, there's an air feed that I have coming up from uh, the basement and the air circulation down there. That's where I get my air from, but you might need an air pump. So I'm assuming when you say your basement, it must you must have like a PVC pipe system and you just yeah. have taps running? Yeah, so yeah. It would be normally if someone's doing this without that, they just use any aerator. Nothing special. Any air pump. Yeah. It's just an, you know, one that has some oomph. And then the other important thing that is required for this is the light. Uh, we're really dependent on having good light. So Mary tied me, uh, tune, turned me on to the uh, Tuna Blue uh, PAR38 light. So it's an LED PAR38 form factor. Um, I want to say I'm using the 12 watt. I think there's a 25 watt and a 12 watt, uh, but it's the right, right, it's the right color spectrum for coral growth. Uh, and the only other piece of equipment that I didn't already mention is that I have a Finex heater controller. And the reason I have the heater controller is I live in Duluth, Minnesota. This vase is literally facing the front entryway to our house. You open up that front door, cold air is hitting that vase. Um, so I have the heater controller to give me better control than the built-in thermostat you would find on most heaters. And what was the and brand of that one more time? Finex, F-I-N-N-E-X, Finex. So it's the Finex heater controller with the cobalt slim uh, profile. Uh, I think they call it a neotherm or something like that. Um, but those two things together, the, the, the heater controller is the primary temperature control. And the heater, the heater's actual uh, built-in thermostat is the backup in case the case the heater controller fails. So the so heater how controller the heater controller do it better. I mean, it's a thirty-dollar thermostat. Its its sole purpose is to be accurate within a half a degree, whereas most aquarium heaters, their accuracy is a degree, degree and a half. Yeah. So it's just I use that as the primary control. The thermostat on the heater is set like a degree higher. So if things get out of control, the heater will shut itself off. So ordinarily, the heater is always stuck in an on position, and the controller is doing the actual controlling. And it also keeps your your hands out of the out of the jar. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't you don't have to go into the vase much at all. Oh, I, I should mention I have a, a a two little fishies nano mag for scraping the glass, and that just is always in there. Just lives in there. It's, yeah. I, I don't know the little ones. I've I've seen a couple people have them. I've never purchased them. They look like I don't know, like square jelly beans that they put in like these, these little nano tanks to scrape them. Yep. Is, yep. I'm assuming it's the same concept. Yeah, 
It's very small. Uh, a nano mag from Two Little Fishies has a flat, almost like a Velcro piece and a flat magnet. And on the outside, it's a really big, bigger magnet and a handle. It's a round circular disc kind of thing. Um, that gets into any little space, has a very low profile inside the vase reef. Uh, it works really well. So just to go over a couple of pieces of the hardware here, you said the Tuna Blue uh, Spectrum, and that looks just to be like a bulb that you would put into anything of what? It's an yes. individual bulb, and it has looks to be like 15 different LEDs connected to it that, again, control the individual spectrum. So it's nothing huge or obstructive to a jar. It looks like it's you know form-fitting and, and something that would actually match a top of any container, however big or small. Well, it's a it's a Power 38, so it's like a spotlight. It, it's built to go into a regular mogul screw-in style base, like any okay. household light you know light fixture. Uh, I actually have mine using some IKEA yeah. uh, lamp cord that hangs down from the ceiling, and I have a shade around it, so it looks all it looks really nice in the house. Uh, it's but you could use it with a a big desk lamp as long as you could screw a bulb in. There you go. Now, I'm assuming you have this on some sort of scheduler, so it only goes X amount of time because it's coral. You got to be true. Yeah, pretty. just a regular old timer. Nothing fancy. Gotcha. It even have on the Amazon website because, again, I'm looking up these parts as you're as you're telling us this. And in the description, you know how they have those Amazon previews. They have yeah. a beautiful coral jar sitting there as an example. Now I have to so, go. Uh, look. <laughs> oh, it, it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful look for sure. But no, you're getting that full uh, full blue. Now, is there any controls on that, or is it just full spectrum on and off? Well, it's it's very basic, full spectrum on and off, nothing else. You're making you're making this too hard, Robs. Way too, too hard. hard. I'm just making sure, you know. Get yourself a you know, empty out your cookie jar. Get the crumbs out. Get the crumbs out. Get the crumbs out. Wash it. Me. Run it through the dishwasher once or twice. I mean, that's that's literally all it is, and it's twenty five bucks on Amazon, and I think. Uh, uh, free shipping still. Oh, there's only one left though. So someone's got to shop fast. Hopefully they'll reorder by then. Oh no, no, there's more. <laughs> oh, but yeah, it's it's a uh, yeah. I've got. I'm looking now. I can see my purchase history. I'm using a 12 watt. It's nothing. 12 watts of light. It runs the whole vase reef. Um, and it's been three years now, and I haven't needed to replace it. Uh, I think the the one of the one of the apprehensions of talking about doing these little these little saltwater tanks is there's not a lot of equipment to buy. They're not expensive. So uh, from an industry standpoint, maybe not the best thing to promote for everyone to be making money. But I look at the base reef. Uh, for me, it's extremely low maintenance. We haven't talked about that yet, but the maintenance is basically feed it once a week, scrape the algae, four hours later, do a water change, and you just do 100%. So on my base reef, the actual uh, volume of water is about 1.25 gallons. The rest of it's displaced by the live rock and the coral. So it's a once a week, 1.25 gallon water change. I just take that from the mixing downstairs, drain it. And I actually use extra, I kind of rinse the reef. So I drain it down all the way to the bottom, pour in about a half a gallon. It stirs up all the detritus, uh, suck out all the water again, and then fill it and I'm done. And then there's no dosing. No worrying about the water chemistry because Ooh, you're using... no dosing. No dosing. You have to no at least the first time, like to get Nothing. it set up. I'm assuming just just use your regular old salt mix that that works for you. Uh, I was running it on reef crystals for years, and I switched to uh, uh, the, the Dr. Foster and Smith uh, salt is what I'm using right now. 
Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm getting more inspired. I came in this podcast thing. We're going to learn about it. Not for me. Right. And now I'm getting like, come on, this is, this is too easy. Like I need to flex to have some salt. You know what I mean? No, no, that's it. That's it. Nothing else. I mean, as long as you can mix up salt water, some people, I mean, Felicia was using the natural salt water. That's another route to go. It's more expensive. That's the pretty have, the jug, right? I have an RODI unit. I have a 50 gallon brute that I mix in. I have the pump that, and the heater and all that stuff for all the other saltwater tanks. So someone who's already doing saltwater, I like the vase reef because it's like a little bit of a, a place for safekeeping of your most precious corals. Take little frags, put, put them in there. If, that, if your main tank crashes, you might have your backup frags sitting over in your vase reef. But the flip side, if you want a really simple way to get into salt, you can probably do a good vase reef for 200 bucks. And if you're buying, if you're going to your local store to just get their salt water, or if you're buying the pre-bottled natural salt water, you don't even have to mix salt water. Easy peasy. So just to repeat that, how much money for this? Just all set up and done? Maybe 200 Maybe. I mean, okay. I think uh, I think I used my my Mike my Michael's the the apothecary jar was like forty dollars or something, and then I oh. had a forty percent off coupon, so that was twenty four. Uh, the heaters maybe fifty, the controllers maybe thirty, the light bulb is twenty five right now. You need an air pump, you're done. Oh, well, the mag, the mag, the magnet's twelve. So yeah, and then figure a little bit of a little bit of live sand. Uh, I have like two or three inches, uh, eh, maybe four four inches of salt uh, sand in the bottom i just had that lying around i used real reef uh the the real reef rock i just took a couple pieces i had sitting in another tank and then coral wise you guys will appreciate this i i just emailed uh dave over at uh, uh north star and said hey i'm starting this project uh with my shipment of fish hey can you just grab like 12 really hardy corals just i need them for this project he sent me a, a good selection of coral it was really simple. And what a wonderful thing to have just sitting on your desk. I mean, if you have in your office, you could put this in your office. Yeah. You could put you could put this in the entryway. You could put it on a shelf behind your, your office. I mean, how cool is this when somebody walks in your office and sees something like that and, and they'll go, is that real or is that just a, you know, something fake? Oh, uh, yeah. I wanted to, I want one of those uh, big jars you were describing before and then have it all nice, the blue setup, everything done, and then have just like a uh, label saying not cookies. You know, <laughs> not cookies, right? And then keep it in the kitchen. Yeah. Right. Wow. So let's go with the contents now. You, you talked about having, you know, uh, live, uh, live sand or uh, is there a special – you talked about special brands. Is there anything else that you can use or is it just basically sand recommended? I use Carib Sea Fiji Pink. The bag sand, I mean, a bag of that sand's 20, 25 bucks. That's 20 pounds of sand. So you can almost just beg or borrow a couple cups of sand from another reef keeper and you're good. The rock, like I said, I had I had real reef live rock already sitting around. So I just picked a couple couple pieces out. But you can go to any, any fish store and pick out any kind of live rock you want or start with dry rock if that's your preference. And then the the, the important thing is there's no fish. I did try fish a couple times. And they just need to be fed a lot. So I had a couple gobies that did well for a long time. Uh, and I was feeding Ocean Nutrition's. They have a really cool product. It's a very small glass jar of newly hatched brine shrimp. It's shelf stable until you open it and then you keep it in the fridge. And so I was feeding that in. I could see if you were raising copepods, hatching brine shrimp routinely, 
feeding the fish in a vase reef like this, with a couple really you know small nanogobies would be fine because the corals would eat it too. But when I was feeding things like pellets, I wasn't feeding them frequently enough. I had some shrimp in there for a while. They did pretty well. But the, the bigger modal life, getting by on a once a week feeding was a little bit much. Uh, so I was feeding more frequently. But it, it, again, every time, every week, you just do that 100% water change. The salinity has to match. The temperature has to match. The pH probably is going to match anyways. You're just hitting a reset button on that reef. As long as you're using a good salt, you got good quality water going in from the from the start. It's going to be good for a week and you're just throwing it out and putting in fresh and that's it. And that's what you recommend without having fish. It's such such a small space that the most you're going to put in is one or two tiny gobies uh, and then you have to worry about how you're going to feed them. So right. most so people most fish. people aren't bothering. Most people aren't doing them with fish. They're just coral and that's really the focus. So without coral, you still want to do a water change once a week. Without fish, you're still going to do a water change once a week. Without fish, I apologize. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fish or no fish, water Water change 100% once a week. A lot of people do 50. A lot of people only do a 50% water change. Matching up temperature and salinity, which really isn't that hard. You just do the whole shebang, and it's a a reset every time. And so you're not going to have to dose calcium. I mean, the vase reef that I'm keeping has been up since sometime in the summer of 2017. Um, so we're going on almost three years now. In that time, I had a postlapora come from about a one-inch frag to basically filling the entire top of the reef. Had baby postlaporas that was spawning in the in the vase reef. Uh, had it killing off corals as it was growing over them. I mean, it's postlapora. It's not a not a terribly difficult coral, but all the calcium and alkalinity that that coral was taking up was just from those water changes. I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, there was a time where I just said, I wonder how long I can go without water changes, and I probably didn't touch it for three months. It was totally fine. All I had to do was top off with RODI. I'm not encouraging anyone to do that. I just did it to see what would happen. But it, it also bears mentioning that it is a really small uh, environment, and it, things can go bad really quickly. And so what ended up happening about a month and a half ago, had my trochus uh, snails start spawning. And within a day, it just crashed out the reef. I was like, okay, they, they spawn. There's a bunch of snail sperm and eggs and whatever. I'm a fish breeder. I was just going to let it ride and see what happened. And maybe I'd get some baby snails. I thought that would be cool. But what ended up happening is it polluted the tank really badly. And so the postlapora died. It was all, you know, RTNing and just, just collapsed. And then, uh, you know, I did a couple series of really big water changes, but it was enough of a stress on the tank that all the SPS coral in the tank died. But all my LPS and all my zoantha polyps and the little uh, micro anemones that I have, uh, all the LPS, like I said, the uh, the Duncans, the candy cane corals, those all lived through it. The Ganiapora lived. Uh, so I just lost my uh, my SPS as a result. But going back to what we talked about earlier, the neck on that jar is so small, I can't just go in and pull out the dead coral skeleton. I'm going to have to like hack it apart and pull it out. It's going to be a bit of a, uh, it's going to be a bit of a project. Whereas if I had one of those uh, anchor hocking, same, you know, same diameter top to bottom, I could just lift out the rock, break off the coral, put it back in. It's going to be a little more work. But um, if that's the worst mishap I've had in three years for the amount of work I put into it, I think it's a solid win top to bottom. You cannot complain. And that goes with any tank. 
you know, us for small tank, the bigger it is, the more it can take for any biological thing to happen. If, you know, fresh water, um, if you have a fish crap out in a, you know, 75 gallon versus a 10, the 10 gallons, the whole tank's gone versus the 75. It's like, you didn't even notice it died. Just having that, uh, that forgiveness. So if you're, if you have creatures in a jar, even however snails, just beware that, uh, Anything can make a uh, biological hazard. You just got to be aware of what's in your jar, clearly. And, and I'm not the first person who's had something spawn in a reef tank and watch it crash. It, it happens. Uh, I just didn't react. I didn't react quickly enough. I figured, oh, it's, you know, it's running. Everything's fine. The coral will eat the, 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 the gametes that are floating around. It'll be fine. No, it was a bad, it, just simple, simple bad judgment call. I should have just drained it on the spot filled it with fresh water, I probably would have been fine. So lesson learned. What do you recommend for coral species in these jar environments? Is, you know, are there some risks of a species you wouldn't recommend over others? No, I would say try anything. I mean, no Why, not? <laughs> Why, not? Why not? Why not? I'm assuming some of those get pretty large. Well, I mean, any of the corals can get really large, but... I, I, that's, that's a different problem. If we're going to, if we're going to worry, you know, we're not talking about filling a jar with a bat fish, <laughs> you know, it's a coral. You can hack it down. You can keep it pruned, whatever you want to do. Uh, one of the most interesting things I haven't done it yet, but with the, with this vase, we talk about the NPS corals, the non-photosynthetic corals that you have to feed on a regular basis. And the biggest problem with keeping those tanks at a large scale is the nutrients that build up. You know, it's, you've got this 75-gallon tank, and you're feeding it really heavily all the time, and uh, you just get oh, nitrates and phosphates you can't handle. But in a vase reef, you're doing 100% water change every week. You're just hitting that reset button. So I would say if someone wants to keep NPS corals, you know, whether we're talking tubastreas uh, or some of the gorgonians that need a, a regular feeding, in a vase reef might be the perfect environment to do that. Um, because you could feed it really heavily and then just, just drain it and fill it back up. And it's, I mean, a gallon of salt doesn't cost that much. A gallon's worth of salt water is not an expensive thing. You wouldn't do that on a 75 gallon tank. You wouldn't do a, even a 55, you wouldn't do a hundred percent water change every week. That'd be really expensive, but a two gallon vase reef, you're not even going to feel it. So that's, that's where I want to go. If I do another vase reef, then you don't, you don't need the light. You can use whatever light you want. You don't need that. So just that's a natural extension for the vase reef for me. Do you have any certain tools that you like to use? I mean, I would assume you'd have some long tweezers and, and some different tools. Do you have a Dremel that works underwater? Anything like that? Nope. Nope. Don't need it. You don't need anything like that. Just... No. I mean, I have I have long forceps that I use for other things. I, I think I've used them maybe once. Just It's just not that big a deal. It's a It's a... You want to set it up and let it grow and keep your hands out as much as you can. Uh, you have to deal with problems as they show up fairly quickly. So, you know, the, the biggest thing would be don't put the frag plugs in with the coral. You know, when you're setting them, uh, setting up the, the aquascape, break off the frags, freshly mount them so you're not bringing in any pests. Do your dips on your coral because, you know, if you bring in something like red bugs or some sort of flatworms or any pests, it's a very tiny container. Things are going to go bad very quickly. So that's that's just another you know good husbandry choices is don't be, be clean from the get go. 
So you mentioned about frag plugs. I've seen on a couple of these jars when you when you research jars and even like on the picture on the Amazon uh, picture that they had is they have magnetic frag plug mounts. Is that the yes. you use in these jars? Um, no, I put it. I put everything just on the live rock. Um, but but yes, yeah, certainly yeah. other people will put them on these little magnet frag mounts because then you can move the coral on the glass and you get more real estate because you're using the glass as another place to mount a coral. So I didn't in mine, but you're right. Other people have. So another one would be coming from a real noob question. You have the airline running in. Is it just running off of just a stone that's just uh, placed somewhere? Or do you actually put that through some sort of, you know, tubing to make sure it gets the correct flow? What, where, how do you place the airline in there just in the base? So I actually drilled through the lid. I, I used a, a small tile drill uh, for drilling ceramic tile. I used that to drill two quarter inch holes in the glass lid. I figured if I break the lid, eh, no big deal. If I break the vase, I'd be more upset about it. So I, I drilled the lid. And then I have a, a, a gang valve to control the flow. It's regular air tube, uh, airline tubing, flexible going up. And then inside I have rigid. Uh, I have that quarter inch rigid airline tube. And I use that because it just, I tried mounting it with uh, suction cups and tried, you know, mounting it in place. It ended up, it would always come off the glass. It just, it didn't work well. So the rigid tube just kind of goes in and you don't really notice it. It goes down in the back behind all the live rock. Um, and so it's just, it's a coarse, um, it's a coarse flow. There's no air stone. You don't need an air stone. The, the main reason for that air feed is to get you water circulation. Uh, gas exchange, of course, too, but it's for the water circulation. We don't have a little MP10 in, the, in this tiny vase reef or even a power head. It's just that air feed is providing the water circulation. So you can crank it up and really get things moving in that vase reef just like you would in any reef tank. Um, and since it has that lid, you don't have really problematic abs, uh, evaporation. You don't have a lot of salt creep at all. Uh, I took and put a little, uh, took an airline and cut it lengthwise uh, and then fed that around the rim of the vase as kind of an extra seal, whereas something like the Anchor Hawkings have that plastic seal. But I ran that just as an extra level. And then the only thing I haven't done, uh, every once in a while, anyone who's running a, uh, an air feed in salt water has experienced that it will clog, it will clog up with salt. And so what I've done, uh, what I should do, I have two holes. I should I should be running two feeds in. I haven't done that yet. Um, I have a a paper clip on standby, ready to. If I notice the flow is slowed down or stop, run over, pull out the rigid tube, and jam that paper clip in to break up the salt. But um, other than that, that that's been my biggest like kind of aha duh moment. That's the one point of failure, is that that's that air feed will clog up with salt. So having maybe two air feeds. A little bit of redundancy there would be good but that's it really simple i used to have the same problem when i was hatching brine shrimp and i'd use that rigid airline which is probably 12 or 18 inches long and i would shove it in but same thing after about 24 hours um, in the hatch jar it would start clogging up and you wouldn't get much airline uh, i took a very very tiny little drill and i drilled three or four holes uh, in different locations on the, on the thing so Eventually, when it clogged at one place, it would release from another place. Um, and it did help me uh, get a better hatch rate and stuff. But yeah, same thing. I had a paper clip on hand. I'm sitting there cleaning this thing every day and it just drives me insane. Well, this this happens once in a blue moon. I don't know if I'm running more air through or whatnot, but 
it's very rare that it happens. But having two would, would solve it. And it's a gang valve. I could run another one. I have another hole drilled. I should just run two. Um, that's my, uh, if that's my biggest lesson out of three years with this thing is, hey, run another airline. That's how simple it is. Perfect. So I think the things to note, other than, you know, this seems to be really easy to get into. If you're not into done saltwater in the past, for those that are listening that are thinking this is the great way to get into doing a saltwater tank that's cost effective and, you know, getting your feet wet is any saltwater aquarium with coral. The biggest thing is water flow. That's why this airline is so important in these big tanks, especially when we talk to Sean Kramer, he has a 2000 gallon reef tank. His biggest problem having such a large tank is the amount of power head and circulation. He's got to continually move these things to get flow and he'll never get the flow hundred percent right in that large of a tank. So in a jar, you know, when you're feeding coral and how they get nutrients, they can't move around, so they need the nutrients to pass by them. So when you're getting this water flow in there, one airline with, with nothing on it is plenty enough to circulate a gallon or two. It's yeah. uh, enough to, to get that around. So that's why the redundancy is there, and he's so concerned. It's not because, you know, they're going to lose oxygen in six hours. He's not worried about that. It's because they're not feeding, they're not getting the nutrients, and it's much more critical in a saltwater unit to have that water flow happen. So earlier you're talking about having these these small little pieces of coral and, and live sand, live rock. We were talking just a little bit ago about how inexpensive this is to get set up. But I think you probably go to your local pet store and get little tiny pieces of live rock because they're throwing that crap away anyway. Yeah, they're only selling big pieces. And I mean, they're maybe not, they're not doing jar worthy. No. And you probably could get yourself some small pieces of, of, of coral and purchase for next to nothing, really. I mean, a lot of these places were more than happy to help you out if you uh, tell them what you're doing. Well, I mean, they're, they're more happy if you're buying stuff in their store, of course. Yeah, so, but uh, it's a coronavirus <laughs> season. Nobody's got no money. Well, Just tell I, me I, I, pump there, my cobalt heater. That's right, my cobalt yeah. heater over here. Yeah, right. get your heater there, see if they can get you the controller. I mean, you go in and walk in with your equipment list and say, here's what I need. What do you have that will work? Um, I mean, I, I want to be honest. I wouldn't necessarily say this is a beginner's way into salt because of how bad, how quickly stuff can go wrong. And you don't know what you're looking for. Like, you don't know what bubble algae is. You don't know what cyanobacteria is. You don't know what the problems are yet. So I would do it as your first, only if you have like a, a good buddy who's, or you're really willing to watch it all die or crash and realize that's okay. I think that it's a gamble, man. You got 200 bucks to your name. Like I could burn that. <laughs> Shoot. Very true. Very true. So I like, I like thinking about it as a, it's very low maintenance. I mean, the, the amount of time it takes to do that water change is minimal. The LED is going to be good for another two years before I really have to worry about replacing it. My bulb cost is going to be 25 bucks. I should just go buy it now. Uh, just so I have it. I mean, yeah, it's, but it is, it is a small, volume of water things can go bad very fast in that small volume of water and that's really the downside but you know we're talking about coral frags you got a buddy who's got a reef tank who's already making frags hey give me a piece of that and that start there there you go or offer to help his, you know, watch his coral tank when he's gone for the weekend and help yourself see i'm always here trying to save a buck you know <laughs> i just spent 500 dollars on freaking freight i gotta get money somewhere you're well, on a pretty cheap ass yeah I, th I think the thing, you know, I went to uh, MACNA, I want to say it was 2018 when we had uh, we had just released this. Maybe it was before that. But either way, 
went to Magda and I got a piece of bubblegum digitata and having that tiny little piece of a really high-end coral, putting it in this reef tank, I knew the tank was doing well and it was going to do fine. And I got to watch it grow. I got to, you pay more attention because it's such a small thing. You really have to pick and choose what you're going to put in it because 10 coral frags, you're done. There's no real estate. You could probably get away with even five, just five kinds of coral that you really like because that's it. And if you want more time to set up another tank or at least another vase uh, and, and go from there. But I also like, like I mentioned it earlier when we were talking, I like the ability to safeguard a, a, a really important coral by taking one of your first frags and putting it in your vase reef that sits somewhere else in your house or, you know, uh, we, we trade insurance frags between hobbyists all the time. Like, hey, I got this really cool thing. My buddy gets the first piece of it because if mine dies, I'm going to get it back from him. Well, you don't need a buddy, just you need a vase reef. See, you can be even more COVID friendly. I don't need to talk to people or see people. I'm just going to have a backup reef. There have you go. Have a backup reef, yeah. Or backup 75 tanks down in the basement like Matt does. So, so other than stuff we've covered, again, redundancy for airlines in case they get clogged, check them often, right? Um, the size of jar, the, specifically the size of mouth, if you want to pull out a grown frag, know that either one, you're going to have to sacrifice and cut it into frags, or two, have a nice wide mouth. You know, what are some of the other quick tips that you'd recommend or mistakes? It sounds way too easy. You know, the, the one thing I was thinking of really quick is Matt said he went over to, to Michael's to buy his, his vase, to buy a good quality jar or good vase that has good clarity to it. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that doesn't have clarity at all. It's just like looking through, you know, fogged windows and stuff. So I think to, to spend the money on the jar is probably the most important thing to do when you first start out is, is get the right size mouth on it, get the clarity as best you can and uh, figure out how you're going to do it before you even go out and spend the money on it. Well, you raise a good point because you don't just want to order your jar off the internet. You want to go and look at every jar because I guarantee you there's, there's jars that have big imperfections in them. You, you they're not perfect. They're not, they're not an aquarium. There's going to be imperfections in the glass, no matter what you purchase and the curvature of the glass is going to distort how things look. You have to buy into the, I realize it's not perfect. And you have to be willing to go, go to your Target, go to your Walmart, go to your Michaels, find that one that you like the best and use that. Because yeah, some of them are really crappy. Oh, absolutely. Um, my ex-wife used to like to go to Hobby Lobby and there is such a huge difference in different things of glassware. And the price reflects that also. So, I mean, you can buy yourself a huge jar for 30 bucks or you can buy yourself a small one for hundred bucks but the clarity the craftsmanship is a second to none if it's from italy or somewhere cool like that yeah i did i spent 24 dollars on mine and i'm happy with it so well guys if you have more questions about the saltwater jars or anything you heard in the podcast today certainly go to aquariumguyspodcast.com on the bottom of the website you can email us text message us leave us a voicemail you can go on our discord which is our chat client and it's actually where we're doing the podcast live now if you want to join live we try to do this mondays at 7 p.m so hopefully we'll see you on and uh, to join us and uh, we appreciate uh, all your support for the podcast. Yeah. And we, we, st we try to start about 7 p.m. Uh, central central time, which means about eight o'clock because it usually takes us about 45 minutes to get going. So if you uh, don't get home till 730 at night, still tune in. Because, join us. Because we probably haven't even gotten going yet. Got to got to cut the drinks and, uh, you know, Jimmy's got to put pants back on now that we have a camera going. Oh, shoot. Yeah.
next part, I want to put a disclaimer here before we start freshwater because you know saltwater that's getting popularity you, you post it in the magazine it's been getting some traffic for a little bit now right freshwater is still has an extremely bad rap and i just assume that if you know matt was trying to put an article up on uh starting your your freshwater one gallon jar there might be some uh, livid people talking in the magazine we're what i want to do is learn from everybody in the hobby regardless if you agree with them or not right keep your, op- your opinions you know they're they're valid you've Major opinions probably not based off of just an assumption. You'll probably learn some fun new methods. So take this like you take or should take comedy. Don't get offended. Listen to some of the opinions that we have to offer here, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy what you hear. Dan, buddy, we appreciate you coming on and being so brave <laughs> to take this head on with us. I'm I'm backing up Dan this whole way. That's okay. I got my house insured. That's right. <laughs> we won't give all your address, so you get uh, toilet paper. You know. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's a good thing that I really don't care what other people think. Um, as long as, you know, you go, don't get discouraged um, by your shortcomings. Right. Um, second disclaimer is that uh, anytime we talk about fish in a jar, because we're inevitably going to be talking about that. Um, as an aquarist, I have to repeat this, as aquarists, we want the best for our fish. And we're trying to s- simulate natural environments for the best care and culture of our fish. So when we talk about a fish in a one-gallon jar, that may not be the best. It may be a short-term place or some other ecosystem. Don't judge. Just uh, care and listen in. So let's let's deep dive in the subject. Now, Dan, where are you lo- located? Do not give me your address. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you already have it. He's in a van down by the river. He's in a van. Yeah, that's right. See, if you down say it, then the I river. feel less guilty on this. You're, you're divulging the information. No, no, no. I live in uh, sunny Southern California, just a stone's throw away from the beach, uh, which is ironic because I have never set up a saltwater tank. I have all of the uh, ingredients right here. See, I even set up a saltwater tank, but I'm not even close to an ocean. So shame on you. You have to get on that. So don't worry. You'll talk to Matt after the podcast. He'll get you a jar. (laughs) Don't worry. I got one of uh, Jimmy's old pickle jars. It's probably stained blue, too, from methane blue. Oh, you bet. You bet you angel fish eggs. Yeah. Right. Number one, what got you started in jars and you know, how many jars do you have? Um, let's see. Uh, what got me started? Oh, in whoa, jars? Whoa. He's counting. <laughs> let's see. Uh, probably about a dozen right now. Um, anything from half a liter to, you know, a few gallons. What got me into jars? You know, it's always good to have a, uh, a quarantine tank or a, a grow up tank or a birthing tank, you know, but it's like, a little difficult to go out and get yourself a brand new aquarium uh, just for that or even find the space for one so you pass by a couple nice bowls in the 99 cent store and one thing leads to another when did you get started doing these jars uh it's been a couple years now so what's the longest running jar that you have that's been continuing uh, continually going or that you have friends that have done um honestly the longest one i have going it's maybe about a gallon and it's been running for close to a year no water changes no light no filter no heater nothing so it's a gallon is it uh open top or is it uh you know when i say this i, I know you've given me a tour before uh, mason jars what containers do you use do you have water in these uh, jars <laughs> yes there's water in them um, these jars i'm just assuming it's like a jar full of cookies or something paint us a picture with words 
Okay, so, you know, they're basically just kind of hodgepodge jars. Uh, build them with substrate from your other tanks, uh, you know, scraps plants, plants, throw in a few guppies or shrimp, you know, that you don't necessarily want to cull, but, you know, still want to hang so on to outside of a separate you, tank. What kind of jars do you gravitate to? Is there something specific or examples um, that you... You know, your simple spherical-shaped bowl or, um, you know, one-liter cylinders always look nice so like a vase open top oh yeah like open top. Jar like uh, matt was offering yeah as wide of a mouth as you can get on a jar um certainly helps so explain us to, like one of your uh, your setups that you have what uh what, what's the substrate what kind of plants reclaimed dirt i dirt. think it's ultum control soil Old tank, old plants, you know, floating plants, stuff that gets trimmed, it just goes in the bowl. And if it grows, it grows. If it decomposes, uh, so be it. So you're recommending uh, these jars, and I'm just trying to walk through the process to try to get, uh, get grasp of this, is that these are symbiotic to your aquarium, meaning that you're using stuff that's already been, you know, cycled, tested, or started to grow. You're taking scrap trimmings from an aquarium. You're not just putting, starting a jar fresh and putting gravel in there from a, a bag, cycling the jar out first. You're taking it from a tank that's been already pre-existing and proven, correct? Correct. Um, it just kind of takes out a whole bunch of variables that, um, you know, you, you're already going to have enough things to worry about uh, maintaining a small body of water. You don't need to throw anything else up in the mix. Now, when, with your livestock that you have in these tanks, do you uh, add livestock, or once you, you get to a point where you've got three or four fish in there, do you just leave it alone and start another jar? Well, better yet, um, start with the process of how he starts the jar. So he, he puts the stuff in there. Do you wait a period? Because, again, it's, it's already pre-cycled product. Do you wait for the plants to show growth or they're being algae? Is there a, is there right. a time to this? Right. Yeah. No, you're going to want to start it up and, and kind of treat it as a planted tank first and foremost. Uh, and as it proves itself, either, you know, growing healthy algae or, you know, seeing good plant growth, then you might want to consider adding livestock in. But, you know, obvious choices. You don't want to go and, you know, throw a ball of shark in your one gallon bowl or it's going to be a nightmare. So I'm trying to walk our. our novice guests through this that are considering themselves um you know number one calling you crazy and two whether well, maybe they want to set up the jar themselves <laughs> so from this you know pre-set up uh, jar how long do you give it before uh you think it's safe for fish you just look for signs or do you give it like a two-week time frame uh i mean you, you're constantly looking at them so you so you get a, a feel for when they're ready for uh, livestock but Everything pretty much happens in two weeks, you know, as far as plants, growth, uh, the cycle. If it's not started in two weeks, then you could be doing something wrong. Uh, get it going and watch it take off. But, uh, you know, like, okay, and, uh, you know, like Matt said, once you get it set up, you really just don't want to touch it. It's the best thing you can do. So, again, I'm going to walk through the, the, the whole setting of a jar. You get the container, you get the gravel, you put in the plants. Um, what lighting do you use? Uh, well, a lot of these are in a room with a window. They don't necessarily get direct sunlight, but they do get ambient sunlight. Honestly, I do not light them. Whatever comes in through the window, 
is their lighting schedule. Uh, so you get a lot more forgiveness I, comparative to the salt water as far as you don't need necessarily need spectrum. You're getting, you know, enough light from a well-lit room. And you're putting these, are you putting them close to the window? I know you're in California. I'm always worried about freezing. So I don't even play no. aquariums close to windows. <laughs> Indirect, um, just kind of off in the corners, not necessarily where they're going to see sunlight directly on the glass. But uh, the sun hopefully keeps a pretty consistent lighting schedule. And, you know, that, that helps, things, helps things along do you have any that you use uh, automated lighting as far as like artificial lighting on, or is these pretty much exclusively done from lit rooms? Honestly, there is absolutely no tech on any of these bowls. No lighting, nope. no filters, no nothing. Yeah, it's just, if just you thought the salt, <laughs> if you thought the saltwater bowls were low maintenance, this is even more. Just a step down. Yeah. Simple, simple. So when you've got, since you don't have the direct lighting on there, do you have any problems with the LG in the bowls? No. Okay. That, that's interesting because when I grew up, I grew up in, in rural North Dakota in a little town that had uh, 52 people. And my, I'm so sorry. No, it was a great, <laughs> I had a great childhood. I got nothing to cry about, man. Uh, my mom had a 15, 15 gallon guppy tank and she had, I'm not exaggerating, 40 or 50 bulls with baby guppies at all time. And she would change the water once a week. There's no aeration. There's no problems with algae. Uh, there was no gravel. She, she fed the crud out of these things. And then she would just take them to the local pet store and she would trade it for food or she would trade it for, you know, equipment or, you know, a new heater or something like that. But I was so amazed. Even when I went off to college and I'd come home, my mom had these beautiful, there's three windows and they had these glass shelves across the windows, an old house built in 1898. And there was five glass shelves per window. So there's 15 different glass shelves with bowls like you're talking about. And she might have a piece of anacris in there and she would just take and throw these uh, baby guppies in there. And they'd be all different sizes depending on how long the bowl's been sitting there. And she would not give me any aeration whatsoever. And of course the guppies, so they, they went uh, pretty well. And she had no problems other than the one time uh, we had a jet go over the house and a sonic boom lit off you know if you've ever been on an aircraft when a sonic boom happens it shakes the house <laughs> and one of the shelves cracked uh a glass shelves cracked and took down two or three of the bowls uh shelves of the bowls so she had maybe eight or nine bowls on the, on the floor broken which was a, a, a tragedy but but still i mean she made it really look simple and she cranked out guppies like you wouldn't believe and i just really miss those days of simplicity when you could just do something like that and and nobody really looked down on their nose at you so before we go too deep into this, I just like to point out the history of where the aquariums came from. And we've been doing a gathering, a lot of information on history of modern aquaria. And if you look up and you can look up some of these videos on, online, they have now reproduced like the 1950s videos in living color. Like that was, that was a gag for me, by the way. Yeah. Um, Nobody's laughing. No, no one's laughing. No, not even a little bit. So they have these, uh, these, examples and they don't have real fill uh, hard filtration they're all just hard planted tanks they're slate bottoms the heaters are just coming out as a as a new thing so this is how we used to do aquariums and got away from them with modern fil filtration so having a hard planted tank with indoor lighting somewhere positioned off a window this is how it's done and now getting back to it with jars is just keeping its own complete ecosystem. So uh, in, in spite of this, I've been trying to save up. I have that 1930s slate bottom tank, and I want to do the same thing, like the whole jar premise. Where'd you get that? 
Right? I stole that from you. You stole that from my basement. Yeah, I've had I it, saw it And you took it one night. Just took it flat yeah. out. Yeah, took it away from me. That's that, that aquarium that, that Rob has with the slate bottom was the first aquarium that I ever saw like that my grandmother had. And what she had was zebra danios. And she had great success breeding zebra danios in her tank. And I remember as a child going over there and my, my grandmother would give me two or three little baby zebra danios to take home and kill. So it was a lot of fun for me at, you know, <laughs> at that age. But um, I, I like going back to simplicity. It's fake. You know, we, we, we still got Matt on. And Matt, do you remember when you could go back uh, in the day and you could look on the, like the Ranger Rick magazines or the, uh, the, the different magazines and you could buy dwarf seahorses and live sea monkeys and stuff? Yes, I do remember that. And anyway, um, I was just doing some research the other night, and I actually was able to pull some of that that uh, old advertising off of uh, it was some sort of uh, outdoor magazine. Boys' Life, yeah, Boys' Life is where you always oh, saw it. Oh yeah, right. My brother X-ray specs, and I remember. Got the, yeah, you got the Boys' Life magazine, and you got your dwarf seahorses, and you know it's interesting. A side note is that. They're actually really well suited to small tank culture. If you put dwarf seahorses in a big tank, they they get lost. They can't find their food. They have to be kept in a in a pico tank. Um, but I was hit. I want to I want to go on a tangent here for just a second uh, and ask Dan a question, if I may. Uh, I'm curious Please. to hear some examples of what are in these jars that you have. Uh, you know, like you know, what are these little microcosms like? Uh, I want to hear something about that. Um, well, you know, there's the, uh, the garbage bowl in the corner, um, that I've oh, installed garbage. into my lamp. You know, it's, it's got the, the Dracinia, the leftover duckweed, Amazon frog bit, um, mostly any male endlers that, you know, I'm calling for color go in there, shrimp, small things, you know, you really want to keep them almost waste neutral, you know, don't go putting a big old Corydoras in there and because, of course, it's just going to root everything up and uh, basically kill itself. Uh, I have some that are just as simple as sand and locally collected hair algae with shrimp, and they do not get fed or lit or heated. And Locally collected hair algae? Oh, yeah. You know, you go down to the creek and you just stick your hand in the water and stick your hand in your pocket. <laughs> I'm, I'm grossed out thoroughly right now yeah if anybody wants some i'm selling it on aquabid that <laughs> you got for free i love it and how much how much would my hero how much would some of that hair algae be on aquabid? you know I, I i got a bundle deal going on if you order 100 malaysian trumpet snails um you know i'll give you a good price on that do you really have that many Malaysian trumpet snails? Don't we all? No, you've got more than that. Everybody that says they got a hundred got a million. Business is a booming. Business a booming. Well, okay. So uh, doesn't the algae the the algae hair explode in the jar? Uh, isn't that normal? Like if I see algae hair suddenly the next day is covering my whole tank. Like, how, is it just self maintained by the shrimp? Uh, you know, I think the shrimp kind of pick it clean of anything that floats in on the air, and it's kind of hard to get a gauge of how big the clumps are, but I could swear they're about the same size as when I put them in there uh, three months ago. And and so what, what does the shrimp pick out of there, like like pocket lint from when you put the algae in your pocket? 
Yeah, yeah, you know, a pocket lint, you know, a few sneezes here and there, just uh, whatever protein's available. An old dime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, some pennies from Adam. <laughs> Matt, Matt looks troubled. <laughs> so I've seen you help a bunch of people online with uh, with these that were doing them before, and they were nervous about talking about them. Like, oh, no, 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 we have a resident jar guy in Discord. And you started giving them recommendations, and I, I saw you know some of them. They didn't have enough plants. You recommended definitely more plants. Put that closer to the su- uh, sunshine. Um, make sure to do uh, top offs a little higher. You know you're giving all these uh, different recommendations, and I'm seeing that people are doing this with you know mainly you, you said endlers, but they're not really doing these with betas so often that I'm seeing because they're the lack of heat. Do you have trouble with certain species over others? Um, you know, here in California, the, the climate's pretty, uh, forgiving. So, you know, it stays really consistent here. Um, I, I could imagine anything with, you know, destructive eating habits. You probably don't want anything that's going to root up plants, uh, root up substrate. As far as, uh, low oxygen environments, if, you know, you don't have as many plants as you like or your lighting schedule is a little crazy um you know there are plenty of fish out there that have labyrinth organs um much like betta do where they don't really rely on uh high oxygenation in the water uh they can just kind of skim it from the surface so your favorite species are definitely endlers but what are some of the others that you'd recommend for someone wanting to uh, start some of these if they're going to be doing fish at all because you know these jars like you said shrimp or just snails with the the plants oh yeah shrimps snails uh you know you could do daphnia cultures in them uh all sorts of small copepods any kind of nano fish really or you know uh sorry not dwarf uh pygmy corridoras you may even get away with a betta if the bowl is large enough um i think just a lot of it comes down to the necessary care that you need to give it you know you can't just make it a side thought so what is the necessary care that you're speaking of? Uh, just don't touch it. You know, you want to... Not to give it the necessary care of nothing. <laughs> yeah, the necessary care of not f***ing it up. You know, <laughs> once you get something established, you know, I, I think that's why these became so popular with uh, the non-aquarists as opposed to, you know, the more knowledgeable aquarists where you don't know how to care for your fish. You don't go to the store and buy fish food. You don't, you know, buy a heater or a light. You just kind of leave it off to its own devices. And, you know, Mother Nature can be really forgiving just as long as you don't interrupt it. Um, And, you know, we as aquarists, we always want to get in there, get our hands dirty, you know, trim plants, move things around, add fish, take fish out. And it never really has time to settle and do what it wants, you know, because we're always screwing with it. Well, you know, and a lot of the beauty of having it like the, the small freshwater that you have is that you can go for a week and you really don't have to worry about it. I mean, you don't have to worry about anything other than, than maybe a heater going out or something like that. No heater. Remember? Yeah. But I mean, Matt has a heater in his Marine tank, right? You have to worry stuff about that. But for the most part, you can just, you can, you can walk away, uh, come back and it should be as is as when you left. And for that, I think the simplicity of that is just fantastic. Oh, no, I was going to say, uh, if my heater light goes out, we have much bigger problems at hand. Being so cold in California. Right. Yeah, screw you. <laughs> hell is, hell is freezing over. Well, I, we, we got mad. He's up in Duluth. He's even colder than us. And, and it, we get above 70 degrees, and, and we're all going to retire and die because it's so damn hot here. 
so I can't even imagine what you know how how sad your Christmas is when it's only seventy five degrees down up there in California. Yeah, we don't get snow. It's uh, well, there's some places, but we'll mail you. We get lots. Ah, sweet. It may come as water, but. <laughs> so just to answer some of these questions on and recommendations on people doing betas, we are the Aquarium Guys podcast are not recommending that you put a beta in a small jar and keep it unheated. Betas love heat. If you see one sitting at Walmart unhappy and un- unmoving, it's because they're cold. They're sitting in a very low, um, what do we say, low temperature environment in a re- air conditioned retail store. There's not a lot of water. They're not moving. They're not happy. So how we're seeing a lot of these uh, jars done online, if you're doing a jar, is they're doing it in larger jars. Like you mentioned before, the you know anchor jars, you know they'll get two, three-gallon jars. They'll scape them with a ton of plants. And even in colder areas, like California is very forgiving, you will probably have it you know, 76 uh, degrees in a jar, especially if closer to an uh, off angle from a window. In Minnesota, we're not going to have that same luxury. You know, our houses in the wintertime, for us, stay 68. It's going to be 60 degrees flat for these fish. We don't recommend it. And they're using heat pads to put on the bottom of the jar to keep the jars at, you know, that 74 degrees to 76 degrees that betas are completely healthy at. Um, so be very aware of the species you're using. And um, now my, my question is with scarlet battis, I've seen a lot of information online on, because I, I try to do as much as this jar information as possible. And when I did, I found a bunch of banned you know, Reddit posts and uh, forums that uh, gave a lot of stay off the black web, would you? And used a lot of, you know, how do we say harsh words. So it's very difficult to find, but I'm, I'm seeing that some of the common um, breeds, like you said, endlers, also scarlet battis. And the scarlet battis, because they're so finicky eaters, um, are done with brine shrimp. Do you have any background or testing of that particular uh, creature in a jar? Um, Not the scarlet battis particularly but you know uh, one of the the other important things about when you set up a jar it's not just about um you know the climate you want to also maintain an ecosystem in there your snails your copepods and those once they reach a balance that you're not you know um infringing on you really don't have to feed the fish maybe once a week if that um, more for your enjoyment than their nutritional needs. That's because of some species you have. What are they feeding on in these jars? Um, you know, whatever they can get. Uh, small copepods, daphnia, uh, worms, algae. Any microorganisms that are, that are in yeah, the tank. Anything, anything available. Go to the local Laker stream, get the hair algae. It comes with the daphnia and copepods. And now oh, you yeah. have a whole farm ecosystem. Lid. Have you ever taken yeah. any, any small things like out of the creek, like a little stickleback uh, minnow or something? And try, um, you know, know, it's it's funny you ask. I did uh, snag out a few of the gambusia that the local vector control will put in bodies of water. For mosquito control. And, yeah, and I, I mean, I still have them. I'm looking at a, a cloud of them right now in my 55, and, you know, they, they're hardy. I don't think I've lost a single one. Now, what copepods do you commonly use? Because I know before you've shown me your whole aquariums, and you're one of the, how do I put this? 
uh, without being offensive, freaks that uh, like to have scuds in your tank. You know, I don't mind them as much. I, I hear all sorts of things about them. You know, they eat this and they eat that and they do this and they do that. And, you know, I just, they just bumble about and do their own thing. And, you know, they, they're just fish food. That's about it. You're, you're live. Uh, next. Matt, what, what questions you got? I love your face. If you guys could see a podcast, <laughs> Matt is just, smiling ear to ear like taking this all in matt's going this is my jar i had when i was seven years old when i was a kid oh we're gonna burn this place down <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean i did i uh you know you mentioned using it as a as a hatching tank my first beta or uh guppies i took a gravid female and put her in a jar to watch her give birth when i was like i don't know seven you know it's uh yeah, I'm just I'm I'm being reminded so much of things. I mean, Rob, you said it earlier. Just we've gotten away from this, but like sixth grade sixth grade biology. I remember they had these small, like almost like a critter keeper, uh, little plastic tanks that they would set up for everyone in the class. We had Daphnia. Some I want to say it was um, oh, the name escapes me, but uh, hornwort, hornwort, um, and Variatus platys. Uh, so these little small variatus and daphnia and hornwort, and it just sat there in the classroom for I don't know good four months or so, and it just did its thing. And as students, we observed it. And then the highlight was if you were good and you asked nicely, you could take it home with you at the, you know when summer break came. Uh, so that was exciting. But uh, no, I'm just being reminded of so many things that we used to do the way tanks used to be kept that we've gotten away from in favor of technology no it's cool uh, it, it's simple and it's beautiful i you know it takes you right back to your childhood i can see matt smiling as we're talking and stuff you know we, we talked earlier about about ordering dwarf seahorses and sea monkeys and stuff it just takes you back to your childhood and how beautiful uh, just watching the stuff in your tank just swim around and just like you're not there, like you're underwater and you're watching this all unfold in front of your eyes. And I think it's just a beautiful thing. And I think that's a lot of people missed out on their childhood. If, if you didn't have, you know, grow up in a rural area and bring home a uh, bucket full of, of, of turtles with minnows and stuff that you, you missed out on life. You know, it's, it's funny. You guys mentioned ordering out of the back of boys life magazine, uh, I think we bred anoles for quite a few years that were sold in the back pages as uh, chameleons. Yes, you guys remember that. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you look at the boys' life, I mean, they they sold uh, baby chickens, baby ducks, little incubators with eggs. I mean, I just I just revisited this on the internet the other night and stuff. And I sat there, and my wife goes, "What are you looking at?" And I go, "I I just think this stuff was incredibly cool when I was growing up and stuff." And I remember my mom ordered me sea monkeys. And, uh, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with sea monkeys, you should buy some because they're fantastic. Well, since you guys are going down nostalgia lane, just to, just to paint a little recap, we talked about the history where, you know, modern aquariums were, uh, 1953 run, but the real <laughs> came from goldfish in a bowl. Everybody's heard that horrible term. Goldfish in a bowl mm. started early, early, was it like 900 uh, AD? They're trying to record it, and they have all this. Why different... are you looking at me like I would remember this? Like because I'm older. No, because I know that you've read some of the same books yeah. that I have. They have you know recordings of in China them taking you know native carp species, goldfish, putting them in bowls temporarily, and these were not you know long term bowls. Some even if they were, the water would change a hundred percent every day with some of their natural creeks and streams because again. They didn't have faucets. They didn't have chlorine. Everything was from the you know natural world. It was just completely 
continually changed every day. And it was a different uh, different world. And those bowls held up all the way through to the Victorian era. We have, you know, in the 17, 1800s, we have these decorative ornate bowls. And they've really carried on with a bad rap ever since because people want to start. I'm going to buy a bowl from Walmart. I'm going to put a goldfish in it. It's the cheapest fish you can get for 50 cents you know, at the time at Walmart, they no longer offer them anymore. And that's how they get started, which is, it's wrong. It's it's an education thing. Those goldfish grow eight, 10 inches. They crap like monsters and you're going to have a dead fish in a few days. So that has burnt the bridge. And of course this whole, you know, betas are inhumane to keep in small, small containers. Uh, They're, you know, they're cold. Betas may not be the perfect species for this, but there are species that do work. Small, one inch or less than one inch endlers, scarlet baddest, all different types of species or no fish at all, just have shrimp or just snails and have a beautiful planted tank. And talking to some of these people in Discord that have been doing this, and this is what really intrigues me, there are jars that they've talked about for eight to 10 years without touching them. And all they do is top them off. Completely blows my mind. Like we're, we're talking about how easy and brainless the saltwater conversation was. But you're still doing once a week 100% water change. You know, you still have a heater. You still got a bubbler. This is a kept ecosystem where if you even try to add food in some of these scenarios, you'll you'll kill the ecosystem with bacteria. Like you gave that uh, mention of the hair algae with shrimp. I'm assuming if you try to put food in there, you're going to, you know, destroy what's already set up because they're eating detritus. Detritus happens naturally in the jar. And you're adding extra food that may not be consumed in a timely manner. There's no filter. There's nothing to handle that extra bio load that you're introducing into a jar. So to me, this whole concept may be foreign, but uh, beautiful nonetheless. You know, and we've talked too about back in the 1800s when, when they had these goldfish bowls, it was the centerpiece of your garden. They would have these bowls displayed proudly in the middle of their garden. And people would come from all around to see your goldfish in a bowl. And back then it was beautiful and it was very prideful. People are very, very proud of that. You know, and then now we fast forward to all these years with with goldfish. We talk about feeders and whatnot. And I've talked about it on this podcast before where I still kick myself where uh, I buy a lot of my goldfish from Ozark Goldfish in the Carolinas. Shout out. And just wonderful people. Here a couple of uh, years ago, they offered, they had the old um, milk containers like you would see it in a, on a farm. And when they used to transport these goldfish on railroad cars, which is means trains, they, they would put a block of ice on top of the milk barrel, and it actually had holes drilled in it. So as the train would click clocking down the road, the ice would melt, and it would trickle down into there, and that's how the, the fish got oxygen as it went to the Woolworths and the Five and Dimes and the Ben Franklins of the world back in the early you know 50s. And so, I mean, things can be very simple and yet effective. So I just, I just love the simplicity and the effectiveness of all this. It just takes me back down memory lane. So, Dan, what yeah. is, what's your smallest jar that you have and what's your largest? Ooh, smallest? It's probably somewhere around, I'm going to guess, maybe half a liter. Is it, uh, is, there like, is it a mason jar, like a big mason jar? No, or? no, no, no. no. Uh, these are just, you know, down at the 99-cent store, you get them. People use them for... Uh, setting out displays, vases for flowers. Just you know, go into your 99 cent store locally and just see what they have for glassware. So I, I have more questions now. More questions? We have some uh, 
listeners that message me and they're asking about ecosphere. There are these gimmicks in my opinion of closed system um aquatic ecospheres where they have it's essentially a completely sealed glass um bowl there's there's no lid no anything they've put maybe a stick maybe a i don't know a pinch of uh, hair algae in there and they might have one or two shrimp in this this perfectly sealed ball glass ball and the idea with it is you put it close to the window it grows algae and the shrimp live they exist, but they're getting absolutely no fresh water. It's, in my opinion, a little bit torturesome. This is not that. This is you're adding fresh water to it. You have a lot more control. They grow out. You you can swap your fish when they get to a certain size, your shrimp, your snails. And it's not just sealing them off for forever having a doom or, you know, surviving off what little algae is created in the, in the tank. It's not that at all. You know, what is the longest you've had shrimp in there? Do they breed in the jars? I know we're going to get questions on that as well. Uh, you know, a few of the females are just getting to the point where they're saddled. So I'll have to keep you guys updated on that. But, you know, they're coloring up pretty nice. And these were all um, colorless coals from the nearby shrimp tank. So, you know, Rob's got this pulled up on the internet and about this, this sealed spear. This was a huge deal 15 years ago at the trade show in Orlando, Florida. Um, I was at the trade show. They had just come out with these, and they were sealed, 100% sealed. And they had little, they actually had, some of them had little nano fish, and some had um, little I've never shrimp. seen them with fish. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, and they had all kinds of different sizes and, and different colors of this glass. And then they had little stands for them, too. And it was all the rage, and everybody thought it was really cool. Uh, at that show and then we went the following year to the show and that didn't see him again so there was one year that it was a, a big rage and i don't know what company came out with it and stuff but like like rob said there's a little bit of uh a stick in there with with some some algae it's like a, a pinch of algae it's yeah. real weird and anyway the whole thing was is that it's, it's sealed and you didn't do anything with it so other than look at it but yeah it was quite the quite the rage here for the one year i just find that inhumane because you can't swap it there there's no grow out they're, they're guaranteed to stay in there. There's not even outside oxygen. You have to just get it just from the plant. But let's say that it was cloudy for a week. You know, maybe they didn't get enough food and they're, they're half starving in the, in the little bowl. There's just no control of those sealed units. And I'm really not trying to condone that. I was going to say, I mean, if you have a little shrimp that dies in there, you can't get it out. You can't take it out. So that's probably why it was only there for one year. But it sure was, you know, had everybody's interest in, um, at that time. People were just standing in line to look at that stuff. Yeah, you know, those are great concepts, but I, I can't say I've ever seen uh, many of the sealed ecosystems with livestock in them uh, flourish. So where does this one get, you know, because we're going to have questions on people going to the creek. Where does one get these copepods and Daphnia that you're looking for? And, you know, what's the do's and don'ts on, on that? Because I'm not going to be able to call up a friend with uh, sc- you know, scuds and say, hey, can I get some of that scud? <laughs> He's going to laugh at me or say he doesn't have any. <laughs> you'd be surprised what you can find in your uh your local stream just get down there and look you know nobody really takes a microscope to their plants but they're there just don't leave them in your pocket too long well you got any more questions for them matt yes and no i i it just it reminded me of a couple things so we've been talking about betas uh a lot and i'm reminded of the fact that uh i have two really con- controversial articles that I've published with Amazonas. One is 
shoebox betas because when I was breeding betas, I was doing it in shoeboxes, and that that is this whole thing. And you know, temperature wise, they were in my fish room on top of fish tanks. That was it. And then another thing, one of the most popular posts that we've put out on uh, the Amazonas slash coral website uh, is a look at the actual wild habitats of betas, and they, they really get a bum rap for people not really understanding that, yes, these fish really do live in confined spaces, in small spaces. They're site-attached, especially a, a male that's tending a, a, a bubble nest. He doesn't leave that nest. So I think there's a there's a fine line between this notion, uh, between the anthropomorphizing of a fish to say, oh, it must feel so cramped or whatever. I mean, you look at a clownfish, they never leave their anemone in the wild. They have the whole ocean, but they never leave their anemone. I was breeding black oscillaris in a six-gallon nanocube, which is a small reef tank by any standard. So I think the the there's this inherent idea that small is bad, and it's just not true. Uh, it just requires you thinking through a little bit more to really think about the right fish, the right livestock, the right plants, the right setup. It's not for a beginner, in my opinion. Um, but so much of what Dan has been talking about reminds me of things that I've done as a hobbyist, uh, that many of us have done as a hobbyist, and they're not wrong. They're not bad. Uh, if you're if you're giving the proper care and your animals are healthy, then everyone's opinion kind of doesn't matter, in my opinion. Uh, you have to hold yourself accountable first. Um, and then the other thing that we've been talking about these jars, uh, Dan's been talking about these jars where we're doing nothing. And it reminded me of another article that I hadn't mentioned earlier, which was, uh, it's online, it's called, When I Say Aptasia, You Say Pest. Uh, it was written by Randy Donowitz of Reefs.com. So Randy is a, uh, a professor at Pratt University in New York, and he runs the Pratt Reef Club. And every year, they literally take Aptasia anemones. The students come in, they bring a jar. A, a jar, you know, it could be a pickle jar, a leftover spaghetti jar. They get Calerpa or some other macroalgae. Uh, they get an Aptasia anemone, a little piece of live rock, uh, Ketomorpha maybe, and that goes in the jar. And the students keep that. It requires no input, no nothing. So that is the marine equivalent of Dan's jar in my world is this, we take this animal that's a pest, we try to kill it all the time, but you take it out of that scenario in a reef tank where it's a problem and put it on its own and it becomes this beautiful thing uh, for people to be exposed to and, and have a connection with the ocean. Yeah, it's just a lot of what Dan's been telling me has been really keying into other things that other people do that just where our hobby comes from why we do this in the first place. So uh, really been enjoyable, Dan. Yeah, you know, uh, I think pest is kind of a relative term to to certain hobbyists, but when people say, uh, to piggyback off of what you were um, talking about earlier, when people say, you know, bowls are too small, you, you got to ask yourself, well, you know, too small for what? Uh, just because a larger fish can't live in a small space doesn't mean that a small one can't, um, you know? Yeah people have this this notion that you know your fish is going to go out and explore the rivers and oceans of the world and you know some grand adventure in the wild um when in reality it's probably going to spend most of its life you know in the shade of that one tree or rock or outcropping where 
hundreds of generations before it have. You know, there are many species of bottom-dwelling fish that live in the same recurring leaf litter, and they don't know the difference between this leaf and the next. I think it's a bit broader than what we think it is. It's more about helping it to lead a content life. You know, uh, if you were stuck like in Groundhog Day, you know, you'd have a miserable outlook on life. But uh, as long as it has a compatible environment, it has little need to, you know, search for something better. Well put. You know, that's a lot like a, a, a person, you know, when you first start out, and you get married, and you, and you have a, a child, and you're in your first 600-square-foot apartment, and you have everything you need right there, <laughs> and you're happy. Seriously, you watch too much Dory, because, you know, if people watch Dory, and, and I'm going to go out and conquer the ocean and, and go all over the place. I mean, people are happy in a 600-square-foot apartment with their wife and their kid. Rob's laughing, because I have a foot <laughs> house. But... That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> but I, you know... My wife and I own a house too that was 800 square feet, and Rob's just moved from an, uh, a, a real similar house that was 800 square feet, and you and your wife are very happy there, and then you uh, you moved on. So I mean, everybody is different, is what we're getting at, and you know, small is not bad, like Matt said. I'm gonna get that as a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, well, you gotta tell yourself, Jim. That's a t-shirt my, well, ex, my ex-wife made. Well, well played. Yeah. Well played, sir. You guys suck. All right. Before we leave, I do want to just leave the quick uh, tutorial instruction. We're <laughs> going to do a jar. We're going to get feedback on this, right? If you're going to do a jar, number one, this is not for beginners. This is very difficult. You have to set up an ecosystem and you have to prove that it's running before you stop touching it and let it go hog wild forever. <laughs> Clearly, we've learned that these jars can last quite a number of years if just topped off with water and done nothing else too so number one get your uh, choose your substrate whether it's gravel gravel sand mix or sand even maybe a little potting soil below if you want to really do a real base for some hardier plants plant your tank make sure the cycle is fully established make sure you have actual growing green algae and not just brown algae and once that's all done Add your microorganisms, such as copepods, daphnia, anything that you need to sustain the environment in the tank. And after you've done that, add the shrimp, add the snails. Or if you choose to do your homework on the individual species that you like to add to your tank. Once that's done, monitor closely, make sure they're eating, make sure the microorganisms are still growing. And you will have yourself a wonderful jar that will last you years, if not decades. And last plug, don't forget to go to Amazonas Magazine, subscribe, get back issues. It's seriously the best fish magazine in the world. And you've got, what, two weeks left, Matt, that people can get in so, there? So Amazonas, uh, we added uh, digital back issues for 2015 and 2016. Uh, Omega C and Hikari sponsored those. So we expanded our, uh, our back issue digital archive. So every subscriber has access to those. That was uh, one of the things we did uh, when the lockdown started. And then on the coral side, the coral staff decided to open up digital access. So for Coral Magazine, which is Reef to Rainforest, uh, uh, they have opened up the entire digital archive. Uh, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's like, I think it goes back to 2014 right now. Don't quote me on that. Um, all you need is the email address stuck at home at reef to rainforest.com. 
and you have free access to read all of the Coral magazines digitally through the end of May. Um, so those are the two things that the two publications have done um, to kind of help ease the whole stuck at home thing uh, while we're all sheltering in place or whatever your preferred word is. So uh, lots of back issues to read, lots of aquarium information available. Uh, I got to say, they're both the best uh, aquarium publications out there. I work for both. I've been involved with both for a decade now, um, more than a decade with Coral. So I really appreciate uh, the readership, the support. We love hearing from our readers. Uh, and we came up with these ideas to give back a little bit. So yeah, thanks very much. All right, well, thanks guys again. Uh, yeah, follow up to this. I know you're going to. There's uh, plenty of people in the Discord that have actually been started using these jars with and without fish. Uh, again, it's very low quantity. We're going to get feedback in this. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Podcast.com. Send it all to Rob's. Don't send me nothing because I don't read nothing. So send it all to Rob's and he'll, he'll, get, he'll send it forwarded to us and then we'll make fun of you. Well, I have to start a uh, fresh and saltwater jar now. Go ahead. Do it. Yeah. I'm going to get a metal bucket and a Ham's beer can. And I'm going to make myself a Minnesota jar. A Minnesota jar. Yes, I am. And I'm going to put in some mud puppies and maybe some stickleback, maybe a big perch. A couple bluegill? Yeah, maybe a bluegill. Not a walleye because they're delicious. Don't take any of that advice to heart. Jimmy had a few. Well, thanks again for joining us, Dan. And thanks, Matt. Uh, not a problem. My Thank you. Let's kick that outro. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go fuck yourself, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy, don't you know.